gentlemen, welcome to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined as always by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency and Father, as always, welcome. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here, Stephen. Um, after uh, His Excellency's protestation of overwork, I decided that probably it was best to give him the month of July off. And But we did manage to drag him in for uh, this episode because we can't have Francis watch without uh, His Excellency and Father. So um, thank you, Your Excellency, for coming out of uh, your very brief respite from Restoration Radio to join us. I'm grateful for for whatever I get. <laughs> <laughs> this uh this episode is free for the first 15 minutes to non-members to receive access to all restoration radio episodes please visit restorationradionetwork.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member if you would like to purchase an individual episode navigate to the available episode of your choice and simply click the links below the player on the page after completing your purchase you will be emailed a secure download link Restoration Radio episodes are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. If you are listening to our content on those platforms, please be sure to leave us ratings and reviews. This will help those who are searching for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our content. You can find the links to these two syndicates on our homepage. On this episode, we are going to be discussing our namesake, Francis. It is Francis Watch after all. And even though it's uh, summertime, uh, he has not been taking a break. He has been busy and that means that Father Chicada is busy creating our study plan for this episode. I think what I was most surprised at in doing the preparation for today's episode, Father, was the idea, the thesis of Bergoglio as a man with a plan. I think both you and His Excellency have alluded to this in the past, that maybe the chaos isn't, it is maybe a bit of an act, or uh, that there's a, it's, it's part of a bag of tricks. But uh, this Rorate Chaley article that came out this month, uh, titled A Pope Who Knows and Carefully Plans, gave us some insight into this. Can you tell us the, the conceit behind the article? How did, how, who's, the, who's the protagonist? Who's telling us the story in it? And what's the significance of it? Well, of all things, it's National Geographic magazine. And uh, which is not known really for this sort of uh, sort of article, although they do uh, quite a few articles on rather exotic animals and flora. Yeah, I was going to say it is a wildlife show potentially. <laughs> when I saw his picture on the front, I was hoping that he was one of those endangered species. <laughs> <laughs> well, the um, it's is a very uh, it's a lengthy and uh, very significant article uh, that Rorate excerpted. It showed that it, it discussed Bergoglio's personality and his uh, tenacity and determination in pursuing plans. Uh, because of the way that he tends to speak uh, publicly, uh, often very uh, casually, he's perceived by conservatives, I think, in, in or was initially perceived by conservatives in the modern church as someone who's a little confused and really did not know uh, where he was going. He was someone who needed, uh, you know, a little bit of, of uh, guidance. So uh, Father Zulsdorf uh, told us that, well, we had to uh, read Francis through Benedict, 
to Ratzinger. But it uh, seems that he does indeed have um, a uh, determination when he gets an idea into his head uh, to achieve a particular goal. The um, uh, article in National Geographic uh, interviewed people who had contact with uh, Bergoglio in uh, South America and Argentina. And they, the man they present is someone who is, is, is very determined in, uh, in pursuing his goals. The article also talked about um, uh, Father uh, Federico Lombardi, who is the uh, Vatican communications offer, uh, officer. Uh, Lombardi's um, impression of, that he gives of, of dealing with Francis is uh, someone who doesn't uh, express himself as precisely as Ratzinger does. Now, uh, that, of course, would have been natural because, uh, in a certain sense, because Ratzinger was, uh, was an academic. Uh, with uh, uh, Lombardi, the impression that uh, Francis leaves uh, a little bit is is uh, uh, someone who uh, relies on uh, personal impressions more than on uh, general principles. But the National Geographic article goes on to say that uh, you know he he Francis is uh, someone who is really aware that his his actions and everything he says will be looked at for some sort of a symbolic meaning. And that's, that's something that uh, I think that we've been pointing out here uh, on the show over the past uh, uh, two years or so, that he understands the power of, uh, power of symbolism. Yes, he also knows exactly how to deal with the media, and uh, which you know, makes him able to communicate his message without any problem at all. And he's the darling of the liberal media. So they readily pick up on anything he says or does, and, and they spread it all over the place. The fact that he made it into the National Geographic is uh, already, I mean, they are uh, certainly a leftist uh, magazine. Uh, they They promote all of the the typical leftist agenda on climate uh, change uh, or global warming, as the case may be. And, you know, uh, uh, all the themes uh, that would uh, make world socialism necessary. Uh, so the fact that he made it into an article about him personally uh, it shows, you know, how much of a, a darling he is of, of the liberal press. I mean, that's a very significant thing. They've never done, to my knowledge... An article on a pope. Uh, they've done articles on the Vatican, and and they've shown pictures of you know various uh, Novus Ordo uh, popes. But they uh, have um, never done this, to my knowledge, and I, I think that shows how much he pleases them. Well, one of the other uh, points that uh, the article makes, and. Uh, interviewing and discussing the opinions of Bergoglio by people who knew him in um, Argentina was this this uh, statement that uh, someone said that he's a chess player, that he's a, a person whose every day is perfectly organized, and it's a day in which each and every step has been thought out. 
and that is very very significant because it's 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 shows this uh determination in uh pursuing his goals and those who really know him talk about him in uh, those terms so that's that's really something to keep in mind as these events uh, unfold in fact the uh, the article also says that he actually uh knew in advance, I mean, he had a very clear idea that he would be elected by the, the conclave in, in 2013. That he had, in effect, put his, his affairs in order in Argentina uh, before he left, that he had written letters, uh, instructions, uh, etc. And uh, this, I think, is, is significant, too, because uh, he left the impression after his uh, initially after his election that this all of this sort of came as a uh, as a surprise to him uh, but it didn't that was the the uh, public impression he wanted to give but again the chess player knew what he was doing he knew in advance what the moves would be yeah that almost suggests uh, a type of preordained election and collusion and various other things well shades of john the 23rd don't you think your excellency yeah, well, the same. He he knew, uh, and uh, yes, the Italian government knew it that he would be elected. Uh, so it suggests that. I mean, there's obviously no proof, but it certainly suggests it uh, because you know, that was a really long shot conclave. It wasn't something like the conclave of Pius XII, where everybody knew that he was going to be elected. The uh, conclave after Ratzinger was uh, a long shot. I thought it would last for weeks, but it, it seemed to have been preordained and, and preset. I think he uh, passed on the third ballot, which is you know, very, very unusual if you study the history of those conclaves. Well, uh, same thing with the the appearance of spontaneity. I was uh, struck, also the article mentions that uh, Lombardi thought that the, the gesture in front of the so-called Wailing Wall uh, of embrace was spontaneous, and it fits the narrative of spontaneous. But we're told that that the rabbi discussed it with him ahead of time. So uh, <laughs> this really supports the chess player thesis. But again, shades of JP two theatricality, planning things out, uh, thinking about the significance of things, uh, and we're we're going to get into this a little later uh, in the episode when we talk about gifts that he's received, but. Uh, it's it's really it's really interesting. Uh, again, as you said, Father, a completely unexpected source, National Geographic, and I think they're so guileless in presenting this information. They're not used to having ecclesiastical information, so they're just reporting it very matter of factly. But those of us who are observing the situation can look at these pieces and say, "Well, this is actually quite revealing," uh, and it's not oh, information it's actually, it's, we've seen before. It's it's a bombshell, in fact, because it's it's uh, you know the, the it shows the personality of the man. It shows that this is something that he expected before, and it shows uh, it shows how he operates. I mean, his discussion with the rabbi reminded me of of um, the um, uh, great organ teacher Marcel Dupre who once very famously advised his students that you, you have to plan your improvisations very carefully. <laughs> and so with Bergoglio, he has to he plan his spontaneous gestures very carefully. 
and they are effective. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's theater, just as we had with uh, JP two. It's all theater and uh, publicity and phoniness. Does this put a hole, Your Excellency? Does this put a hole in the Sambornian thesis of the of the trifecta that has to be achieved any time that Francis uh, has an act? Should we add a fourth thing, uh, preconceived? Now, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't know uh, the, if uh, let's. Uh, what is it? Ignorance, heresy, and stupidity. Those are the uh, the three elements. No, I, I don't know if we. Uh, uh, we need to add that that because all of his acts, whether they're spontaneous or not, have all of those uh, elements in them. And uh, so, uh, no, I, I hold to the three, you know, like uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, uh, stupidity, uh, <laughs> ignorance, and what was the third one? Uh, heresy. Yes, those are the three things that operate in him uh, at any given time. Yes, and I, I notice, Your Excellency, that you have picked up the Ratzingerian um, uh, notion of different elements, <laughs> you know, part of his, ecclesia- his ecclesiology. But I, I yeah. think that when, when it comes to those three elements, that Bergoglio has them uh, uh, in fullness, right? <laughs> yeah, he has them uh, full blast. You, know, you can't yeah. get, any, any, get them any more than he has them. Uh, the, the, I mean, you don't have to be either well-educated or smart or orthodox in order to have a strong mind about what you want to do. Uh, yeah, he, he, those things are not incompatible. Uh, the ignorance and the stupidity are not incompatible with a strong mind. As a matter of fact, sometimes the ignorance and stupidity goes together with that because People are close, usually people that are not very smart are closed to logic. They just get a, an E-Day fix, and they, they're going to do this. And you can't argue with them because they're not really on, on the level of argument and logic. So it often happens that way that they get very entrenched in what they want to do. But that's more a, a personality characteristic with him, uh, mm-hmm. I think. And also that, that he's, he has, he's a communist, so he has that... Communist fanaticism uh, that uh, you know it, it, it's you can see it in him that, that he he can't stop talking about various you know subjects and a very limited number of subjects uh, so he, he has that in him the communist fanaticism the uh, the end of the article gives us a, a lead and I think where National Geographic is sort of hinting at I would say maybe even hoping for uh, the quote was. What he will do, if this is Francis, is return the church to its true doctrine, the one it has forgotten, the one that puts man back in the center. For too long, the church put sin in the center. By putting the suffering of man and his relationship with God back in the center, these harsh attitudes towards homosexuality, divorce, and other things will start to change. Sounds like a note of hope there. Your Excellency, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. depends on what you're hoping for uh well certainly uh i mean they're they're right uh they have uh whoever wrote that article is has a correct reading on bergoglio i think that is bergoglio's plan uh he also has a correct reading on the uh what the the change in the church ought to ultimately accomplish this has been, as I said in other shows, the, the idea for many centuries 
to transform Catholicism, to keep the institution the same, but to transform its content, its what makes it to be what it is. Uh, and yes, a totally man-centered religion uh, corresponds to everything that the Renaissance and the Reformation and all of the 18th century and, and 19th century philosophy and ideas and culture uh, has, has produced. Uh, this is the, the dream of the modernists. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm preparing courses for our next, uh, next year's history course, and I'm reading a lot about the modernists. And they all have this dream of a transformed church. This is over 100 years ago. Uh, and uh, it, it goes back to Gioberti back in the 1840s. He's, he's asking, he's calling for a transformed church that will be uh, Protestant. And uh, uh, so it, this is really nothing new. It is the uh, flowering of all of the aspirations of the enemies of the church for transforming the uh, content of the institution of the Catholic Church. And unfortunately, people, most people, especially Novus Ordo conservatives who are <laughs> subject of my comments all the time, all they do is look at the continuity of institution. It's the same institution. And they turn a blind eye to all of this, these things that we talk about every month. And I think what is, what is most shocking and surprising in this whole situation is not Bergoglio or what he intends to do but that anyone can think of that man as a Roman Catholic. That, that anyone could continue to think of him as a Catholic is really the most shocking thing uh, and, uh, <laughs> that we face. What will it take to, for these people to say, well, the religion that, that, ha, that Vatican II has produced is not the Roman Catholic faith? What will it take? Uh, but they, they just look at that continuity of institution, and that's it. You know, he's the he's the Pope, and he's running around in the white cassock. He's in the Vatican. He's uh, one of, the, as I call them, one of the modernist inmates of the Vatican. And uh, for that reason, uh, everything's fine. Uh, but then they start wringing their hands when they hear some of the things that, that we talk about. Well, and along these lines... Uh... Father Chikara, you sort of footnoted uh, something that was related to, well, it was a comment excerpted from Francis's first homily in Latin America, which was given on the 7th of July uh, when he was in Ecuador. And there was a, a note uh, about Christ, our Lord, taking something that is scandalous or impure, you could say, and turning it into a miracle. Now, uh, I know that this is sort of your specialty, Father, taking a very long uh, writing or a sermon of Francis and distilling it down to a few ideas. And I know you won't fail us here. So can you contextualize this, uh, this phrase just here? The highlight, taking... Father Chikata, just the highlight. <laughs> or, or the low light, <laughs> might be your excellency. <laughs> what, 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 what is Francis talking about here? Well, I mean, it's, so he's talking to the people down in, in um, uh, South America about the family and, the, uh, and about the upcoming synod. And then he asks them, uh, these are his words, to pray fervently for this intention so that Christ can take even what might seem to us impure or scandalous or threatening uh, and turn it by making it part of this hour into a miracle. Families today need this miracle. 
So, I mean, uh, the idea is that he's planting the idea that people of probably of a conservative type who look at the outcome of the Senate and what it will say about divorce and remarriage, Catholic family life, it will look on the face of it to be impure, scandalous, or threatening. So he's getting them ready for it. Yes, he's, he's and, laying and the also ground. destroying any resistance to it uh, already. See, mm-hmm. Yes. Don't listen to those people who will say that it's impure, scandalous, or threatening. That's right. Because we're going to turn it into a miracle. More chess Notice, moves. by making it part of his hour, I mean, his hour was his agony and his passion. What does, what is What sort of nonsense is that? I think this is either ignorance or stupidity coming out. What <laughs> reference does that... What is, you know, how, how is our Lord's passion impure, scandalous, or threatening? <laughs> Does anybody answer that? And, and, and the precise time when he never performed a miracle was during his hour, during his passion. There were no... It's when he, he was showing his humanity the most. He could have, he could have struck everyone dead. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, the whole thing is... is but you can see what he's doing. He's saying that there will be a, a chorus of Burks and, and various other people who are going to say this is impure, scandalous, and threatening, but not to worry. It's part of the whole miracle of transforming the church into something liberal. Mm. And he goes on in, in, in the homily to say that, that uh, the best is yet to come, the finest wine is yet to come. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I guess if it's the third or fourth <laughs> wedding, I, th- I think the wine's going to get pretty good. <laughs> by, by that time, you've made enough money in life to afford the better things. Yeah. <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, Father Chicotta or Bishop Sandler will never have to preside over third or fourth uh, marriages. Uh, that's something that uh, you, uh, you you passed on back in the 80s, actually. So... Um, <laughs> When uh, Your Excellency and Father, when I think about the next topic that we're going to talk about, which is, of course, the, the hammer and sickle crucifix, that, that great piece of, quote unquote, protest art that Francis happily accepted, I, 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 I thought through, you know, I wanted to have this sort of hidden camera. What is the reaction at St. Gertrude's right now? What is the reaction at Most Holy Trinity right now? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, does Bishop Sanborn walk into the refectory? with a picture and he says, can you believe this guy? Or, or, uh, you know, father Disposito walks in and says, you're not going to believe this, your excellency. Or, or the same thing. Uh, father Chicada knocks on Bishop Dolan's door. Uh, your excellency, are you sitting down? Uh, and, um, so what, can you tell me what you remember? I, I being a bit journalistic here, but I wanted to find out what was your reaction when you found out about this? Because I know we're always saying we're not surprised by this guy, but I tell you, he still surprises. Theology of surprise. <laughs> well, I mean, my jaw just dropped. Actually, Bishop Dolan pointed it out to me. And, uh, you know, have you seen this thing? And y- your mouth just goes open. You think that maybe somebody photoshopped it. Uh, but uh, the uh, idea is that it's so crazy and so outrageous 
that he would accept something that's so blasphemous and and uh, treat it as if it's 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 an honor and as if there's nothing whatsoever wrong with it and you look at that when when your jaw is dropping and you say how can people continue to say that this man is a catholic that he accepts something like this there's there's no uh, possible rationale you can give for it yeah, that that was my reaction. I mean, I, I was not too shocked that that he accepted it and that he was given it. Uh, my reaction was, how can anyone, any rational person, consider that man a Catholic? When we think of all of the condemnations of communism, with which started with Pius the Ninth in Quantacura, if I'm not mistaken, or one of his documents, uh, the and then. Went on and on. Leo the Thirteenth condemned socialism up and down and through and through, and then uh, of course Pius XI condemned communism, and then Pius XII condemned communism uh, as a system which is intrinsically unjust because it denies private property. Uh, it's against the, the seventh commandment, uh, and so to to see Christ crucified on a hammer and sickle is is a blasphemy it, it it blasphemes our lord and uh so you know that you would accept such a thing that should have been thrown on the floor uh and, and uh, spat upon uh the um uh so in any case i was more shocked by that that this is a, you know yet more one more thing uh for the the novus order conservatives to swallow and to uh, make happy about, or in some way uh, give a you know a benign interpretation to. Uh, and then there was that uh, for a while he, there was this story that well he didn't really want it that this was bad and and in fact uh, he he uh, he repudiated that story on the plane and said no I I, I uh, you know I accept it I have it in my suitcase I'm bringing it back to Rome and uh, so. And then he, you know, he stopped and and did homage to the Marxist priest at the place where he was killed. Uh, I mean, he has shown himself to be a Marxist from day one. He has shown himself to be a Marxist in in Argentina. You know, why are we shocked by this? The the fact that he would would accept this. Why is that shocking? What is shocking is that people will continue to say that man is the pope. Well, you cited the uh, address on the plane, and if I can quote from that, Your Excellency, uh, Francis says uh, in response to Father Espinal, who this this was done, quote-unquote, in honor of. Uh, uh, the In four years later, in 1984, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith published the first small volume, the first Declaration on Liberation Theology that criticizes this. Then comes the second, which opens to a more Christian perspective. I'm simplifying. No, let's do the hermeneutic of that time. Espinal was an enthusiast of this Marxist analysis of the reality, but also of theology using Marxism. From this, he came up with his work. Making a hermeneutic like this, I understand this work. For me, it wasn't an offense, but I had to do this hermeneutic, and I say it to you so there aren't any wrong opinions. And earlier, he had alluded to the fact that he had spoken with with some of the the sort of leaders of liberation theology. So uh, partly... Some of my best friends are liberation theologians, and partly hermeneutic defined as complete departure from reality. So we, we've got a new 
you know, we've had the hermeneutic of continuity and now we have this hermeneutic used as uh, I had to do this hermeneutic. So uh, hermeneutic now is a catch-all phrase that means completely depart from the principle of non-contradiction. Yes. It's like taking a, a, a pill or something, you know, that clears your <laughs> I'm gonna brain. Take a, I'm going to take a hermeneutic. <laughs> <laughs> All of the uh, traditional condemnations uh, of, of the doctrine just go away. It's like the memory's erased and you have no, you know, knowledge of those things. And, and, and then you can proceed. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's something, you know, like a laxative, maybe. It might be more of a... <laughs> more of a <laughs> Uh, the, but it's true. It, it, it's just like uh, we'll see, I think, a little later in the show, the, the whole idea of narrative theology. They come up with these really uh, you know, keywords and with these, just, just a whole way of putting a costume on the, the blatant reality, which is that they are dumping Catholic doctrine and they are replacing it with new heretical doctrine. And they are replacing it with things that have been condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. That, that's the that's the blatant naked reality. But they come in with these explanations that, first of all, are, are so obscure to understand. You have to you have to read them with a hermeneutic. Uh, you you need to, or with something like the golden spectacles or something. You have to uh, know what they're talking about when you read them. Uh, uh, the average person probably could not understand it, uh, but that—that's you know—it just amazes me how they do this. And and again, like the uh, you used to see the German little German shepherd dogs in the back of people's cars that would bob their heads up and down. This was like maybe twenty or thirty years ago. They, they were very common. So also the Novus Ordo conservatives, when they hear all of the hermeneutic, they just bob their heads up and down, and everything's all right. You know, I think we could make that a product, Your Excellency. You know, we could sell it to Novus Ordo conservatives and, and, and their clergy, and, and then in confession they say, you know, just take just take two hermeneutics and call me in the morning, you know, or, or your penance you need to swallow three hermeneutics. Um, I think for like think seminarians could... that might object to some of the new theology, you know, you have to prescribe a hermeneutic. <laughs> oh, that, that that might be hermeneutic surgery for for seminarians. <laughs> yeah. I don't, it, it's, it's no over the counter yeah, stuff for them. <laughs> I, I think think that probably what we'd have to do is is for the the backs of the cars, we'd have to make a Father Zulsdorf bobblehead doll <laughs> and. Uh, this 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 would give you the best possible hermeneutic, I think. Uh, well, well, knowing Father Zolzdorf, it would be linked to some sort of monastic coffee, which you could then click and help to support the apostolate. So uh, you, you'd, you'd take the hermeneutics with the monastic coffee. He might um, end up selling them on his website. You never know. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just putting out the ideas there. If he wants to, if he wants to, useful for his type of people, the, the Novus Ordo conservatives. Uh, of course, uh, Novus Ordo conservatives. We know that uh, there are more than than ten, <laughs> more than a hundred actually, who listen to Francis Watts. So, of course, we we are pushing and prodding you, but we are hoping that you continue to look at these contradictions and ask yourself the important questions. I want to I want to yes, move uh, on. Just add to that. Let's just add to that that really this show is mostly for them. I mean, it is informative of people who do agree with us, and you know, it keeps them posted. 
we don't really expect to be converting too many Bergoglios with this show, uh, or too many Caspers. You know, we're, we're not holding out that hope. This show is primarily, as far as I'm concerned anyway, for those who still retain the Catholic faith within the Novus Ordo and are troubled by what they see. And, you know, we're laying it out to them, what is going on really, and that any kind of attempt to hermeneutic this away is really foolishness. And it's it's uh, uh, the there's the tide of this stuff every month, and um, we try to uh, present as much of it as we possibly can in in uh, going through Bergoglio's public st- all of his public statements and uh, the uh, and worthwhile commentary that uh, people make uh, in terms of an- analyzing what he's up to. Because I suspect that for so many people who are in the conservative camp, that what they hear about Bergoglio is uh, perhaps comes through one or two news sources, and they really don't get the complete picture of what this uh, man is up to. But it is a uh, it is not just a question with his his statements and actions of just one or two things occasionally every month. It's there's something virtually every day, even during the summer when they're supposed to be uh, on vacation in Rome. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. So this is what we're trying to spotlight, as it were. No, we're ne- we're never short for uh, for information on this. In fact, I, I'd rather think of uh, Saint Peter and uh, and the nets and the fishes. You know, if you want to know about Bergoglio, you just throw out the net. Father Father Jacotta does his uh, news searches, and then he pull it in, and the nets are almost bursting. And uh, Father Jacotta has always got a, a almost bursting report for His Excellency and, and us. You drop the uh, internet. I, I think that would be more appropriate. <laughs> right. Uh, They're all every month. There's some exotic new fish that uh, shows up in the net. <laughs> the um, the lest we look at the hammer and sickle gift as something purely passive and say, well, it was given to him. He wasn't promoting it. Uh, not so when he was in Ecuador, he took he made the point of praising the program of of this uh, left wing president. Uh, Father, can you tell us a bit about that? So the uh, leftist president of uh, Ecuador's name is uh, Rafael Correa, and he undertook a number of of uh, uh, different social and uh, political changes. Uh, in his his process of governing Ecuador, so uh, among the different things that uh, Correa spoke in favor of was establishing an international body for environmental justice, um, implement and also one for implementing social inclusion policies, uh, intro- uh, introducing laws on capital gains taxes and inheritance of property tax that is contested by both rich property owners and the middle class which fears it will lose properties purchased for their children. So you, you see, Francis, in um, uh, Ecuador, uh, praising these different political and economic uh, initiatives. And uh, he says to Correa that, uh, Mr. President, you can always uh, count on the commitments and cooperation of the Church. So with, with these very uh, specific uh, types of, of leftist programs, uh, 
that Correa is, is uh, instituting, Francis is putting his uh, his weight, as it were, his endorsement behind it. And this is absolutely consistent with his um, leftist, uh, Marxist, uh, social and religious ideas. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. So you, you can see why he uh, happily accepted the hammer and sickle from uh, Evo Morales. Well, uh, something else, and this is all, again, going back to his trip uh, to South America uh, when he was in Ecuador on the, on the second day, uh, 8th of, the 8th of July, he gave, a, he gave a, a sermon, and he ended by, by referring to our faith as revolutionary. And when I say our faith, he's referring to what he would say is the Catholic faith. And the quote is, when we give of ourselves, we discover our true identity as children of God in the image of the Father, and like him, givers of life, we discover that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus to whom we bear witness. This is what it means to evangelize. This is the new revolution, for our faith is always revolutionary. This is our deepest and most enduring cry. Now, obviously, revolutions play well to a South American crowd. But, Your Excellency, can we say that uh, our faith, the Catholic faith, is revolutionary? No, it is anything but. It, it is... Uh, it takes in all of the natural law. So I mean, the entire uh, natural law belongs to the Catholic Church, and then it has the, mo- the strictest morality of any religion that ever existed on the face of the earth, uh, where certain things are intrinsically evil and which are always wrong. Uh, this is... I mean, the Romans may have considered it somewhat revolutionary in the sense that it it smacked in the face everything that they ever stood for. Uh, And uh, in that sense, you know, it was a big change. But revolutionary in the context of of South America means Marxist, that that it's a social gospel that that, uh, hooks itself up with Marxism and sees Marxism as the... Uh, savior of the people, and the church is going to be one with Marxism. Yeah, how anyone can believe that after Marxism has failed, uh, <laughs> even if we if we take a just completely divorce it from any kind of moral uh, consideration, it has totally failed in every single place in which it was used. Uh, look at Cuba. Uh, they are. They will probably uh, now have a, a certain amount of prosperity because the capitalist monster to the north is going to come in and build hotels for them, and people with money in the capitalist monster are going to come down and spend money in their hotels. And you're going to see an uptick in the Cuban economy as a result of their e- effective abandonment of communism, just like China, to a great extent abandoned their Marxism for a, a semi-capitalist uh, uh, regime. Uh, but everywhere where it was followed according to the Marxist Bible, it just completely collapsed as an economic system. So why, why do we need more Marxism? I mean, not that I'm, I'm tooting the horn of capitalism as a system, because it too has its problems, but... 
at least capitalism respects private property. And it also encourages uh, uh, entrepreneurialism. That is, that somebody can have his own business and, and make some money, make a profit, and live well. Uh, this is what it, it, it promotes. And those countries which are, are, are working under it, in general, are doing pretty well. And those countries that are that are all bogged down with Marxism, such as most of the South American countries, are complete failures. And Cuba was a complete failure. The Soviet Union was a total failure. All of the Eastern Bloc countries were total failures. And now they're doing a little better because they have thrown off socialism and Marxism to a great extent. And and um, uh, so you know, just apart from the moral consideration, to go around and preach this awful gospel of uh, really chaining the masses to to poverty uh that's that's what what he's doing but you know he he can't get off of that he he's a he's a fanatic he has marxist fanaticism that's his religion his religion is is marxism and anybody that is trying to make any kind of a catholic out of him is living in a dream world well everything he talks about is some sort of human problem some sort of this world problem, like people don't have jobs or the, the old people are lonely and all of these other things. It's some, some human thing. He, he doesn't believe in anything about the Catholic faith. I'm convinced. There is not a single article of faith that he truly believes. Uh, and uh, all of it is in some way uh, uh, channeled toward the, the true religion of Bergoglio, which is Marxism. Do you have anything to add to that, Father? Well, it's a, a strong indictment and uh, absolutely true that he keeps on coming back to these themes. And the, uh, that's, uh, that's what we see, that uh, the discussion of, of uh, what God has revealed and what we're supposed to adhere to as, uh, as Catholics, that he dismisses as uh, ideology. And any precision in that is is um, uh, something that is uh, of secondary importance and takes the back seat to the concerns of this world. So uh, that is that has been a, a consistent part of his statements and his outlook since his his election. What were the the, the two greatest problems in the world? Were the, the youth unemployed? Yeah, youth unemployment and then something else. The loneliness so, of the old people. Yeah, and, uh, so what you say? You've got to listen more closely to, 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 to Francis's, you know, big concerns. His Excellency is right on it. Uh, yeah, know, yeah, he I'm really is. five years old, and I'm feeling the pain. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. It doesn't, unless it... Um, happens here somehow in the social context, and uh, this world, he's not interested in it. The rest of it is, is the small stuff, and don't sweat it. Right. Well, we're going to move from encyclical, we're going to move from hammer and sickle, sickles to encyclicals. Um, while we're doing that, I want to remind our, our listeners that Don't tell Father out of that, then he'll, he'll come up with something else and stick on it. <laughs> <laughs> what Don't my encourage me. You are listening to Francis Watts. or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. It's been predicted. 
Uh, you are listening to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and uh, today His Excellency and Father have been discussing Bergoglio as the man with the plan, uh, the the chess player, uh, and his reaction to the hammer and sickle crucifix. And we've also talked about some of his sermons and words while he's been in South America. We want to remind you that Francis Watch is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. Father, I said we would get to the encyclical, which we know you've called the recyclical, and they identified uh, one of the drafters. And you you point out in in the notes that it's not usual for the church to publicly and officially identify the draftees. For example, I think many, many years later, we we partly was really the the ghostwriter for meet Brendan Osorge because he was the the uh, consul to the to Germany, so he was best positioned to write that. Um, but here, I guess uh, we've be, we've been told almost immediately and officially that uh, this uh, Father McDonough, Father Sean McDonough, was a big part of the people who a big big part of the group who who worked on Laudato Si. Can you tell us a bit about this and, and about him? Yes. Uh, well first of all the first point that you make about um the drafters of encyclicals and, and uh, how it's it's viewed as something that's normally uh anonymous and only comes out much, much later is uh a rather old practice. And the reason is that um, an encyclical is supposed to be the teaching of the magisterium of the church, part of the, the ordinary magisterium of the church, and it's not supposed to be identified with uh, uh, any particular person. Uh, rather, it's it's something that seems to be coming uh, to be seen to be coming from the pope in his uh, uh, official capacity as the successor of Saint Peter. So the idea that you um, uh, that there's an author uh, of it, other than the pope who puts his name to it, is not uh, was was uh, looked down upon. Even though, as you say, years afterwards. Uh, sometimes it it, it um, uh, comes out one way and another who um, which uh, theologian had a major hand in in composing uh, an encyclical you mentioned uh, uh, Benedict Sorga there is a um, also a um, a member of the Redemptorist order who had a, a hand in the writing of, of uh, uh, Pascendi of Pius X, and uh, there was a, a Jesuit eventually who had a, uh, a hand in uh, writing Pius the Twelfth's uh, encyclical on the matter of form for holy orders. But this is something that's, that doesn't come out normally when the document is issued, uh, precisely because it's supposed to be seen as an official pronouncement. What appears to have been done here is that uh, is uh, principles turned on its head, and the idea again is to um, uh, use uh, the uh, the author or someone who had a main hand in the document as someone who promotes the uh, ideas that uh, this encyclical Laudato Si. Um, uh, uh, represents and, and and embodies. So, the um, uh, uh, 
priest involved is an Irishman, Sean McDonough, and he uh, gave an uh, gave an interview, which uh, uh, part of which appeared in the the uh, New Yorker magazine website, an article written by Naomi Klein, and he talks about uh, the idea that now uh, the the fact that we have this love of nature. Uh, embedded in the encyclical is is uh, uh, a profound and radical shift from traditional Catholicism, and he says, "quote We're moving toward a new theology." And then uh, to prove it, he uh, quotes um, the phrase that occurs uh, again and again in the traditional liturgy: um, uh, "Teach us to despise the things of the earth and to love the things of heaven." I mentioned that a number of times in my book, and that utterly disappeared from the new um, uh, uh, new orations, the orations of the new mass. And uh, he said that overcoming centuries of loathing of the corporeal is no small task, uh, and it serves um, a little purpose to downplay the work that is uh, going to go on uh Go on ahead. So he had a uh, uh, that this is part of um, uh, this is part of the program that you you put that um, idea of um, despising the things of the world and, and the radical um, uh, difference and diversion between the the values of of the city of God and and uh, this world uh, or the city of God and the city of man in this world. Um, that is no longer uh, applicable after uh, the Second Vatican Council. So uh, this is, Father McDonough sees this very much as uh, this notion is very much represented in the uh, encyclical of Bergoglio. So the, the the author of the article, Naomi Klein, says, "I ask how the Bible could survive this many fundamental challenges." Doesn't it all fall apart at some point? He shrugs, telling me that scripture is ever-evolving and should be interpreted in historical context. If Genesis needs a prequel, that's not such a big deal. Um, indeed, uh, Naomi Klein says, I get the distinct sense that uh, Father McDonough would be happy to be part of the drafting committee. <laughs> so you so, take a hermeneutic. Uh, yeah, hey. <laughs> the interpretation means hermeneutic. It's just a Greek. The uh, Latin is interpretare. The the Greek is hermeneutic, and so it means the same thing. So it just should be hermeneuticized in historical context. So you know, take another hermeneutic pill. That's all you do, and that gives you the evolving sense of scripture. Evolving means that all of its content is emptied out, and it's all fairy tales and and just. Uh, just nonsense. Uh, that that's the hermeneutic of that. <laughs> see, they, they always run back to that coverall of the hermeneutic. Yes, they do. Uh, indeed, they do, and uh, that's what you. That's exactly what you see here. Yes. So the the um, uh, idea, uh, or uh, again, that you. you the conclusion that you draw from reading something like this is that the rev- revolution that people like Maradiaga and Casper and so on have been talking about is going uh, forward at uh, at full speed uh, on all these different fronts. 
thanks to Bergoglio and thanks to advisors like this this Father McDonough. Yes. Well, I speak. He would pick those people as advisors too. Is very very important, and says an awful lot about Bergoglio. Well, speaking of hermeneuticizing scripture, we are now told uh, that we are being like Cain, Your Excellency. Uh, we can no longer turn our backs on our reality, on our brothers and sisters, on Mother Earth. The Pope continued. It is no longer licit for us to ignore what is happening to our surroundings as if certain situations did not exist or have nothing to do with our reality. Again and again comes the strength of that question of God to Cain, where is your brother? If I, I ask if our response continues to be, am I my brother's keeper? Well, Mother Earth, Cain, brother's keeper. I'm sorry, Your Excellency, I'm a bit confused. You're confused. You're asking me to explain that? Uh, He's asking for the hermeneutic. Okay. It's channeling everything about the Catholic religion into a funnel that uh, is Marxist and globalist and this world. I mean, you could take uh, what that that Irish priest says and just turn it around. Teach us to love the things of earth and to despise the things of heaven. That that's the new religion, uh, and it's becoming more and more obvious uh, that, that there is, is the despising of the things of heaven. It, it's all of the religion of man that started with the Renaissance and is now coming to its maturity. It's all it is. It, you know, there's, there's nothing complicated about it. We're just seeing, as I said, the flower unfold, if you want to call it a flower, uh, what is one of those uh, plants that stinks? I forget what it is. The uh, But that's more like what it is. It's just unfolding and unfolding, becoming bigger and bigger. Uh, they're becoming bolder and bolder because there's virtually no uh, resistance left in the Novus Ordo. Most people are really happy with Bergoglio. Uh, and you know, so they they sense that that they can get away with this stuff, and you can end up on the front page of the front cover of uh, of uh, National, National Geographic. Geographic. I mean, yes, I mean next month there might be a baboon, but you know, <laughs> you know, nonetheless, you know, you get a big, a lot of publicity that way. But the, uh, you know, I think that they sense that this is this can go forward. It will be. Uh, it will be accepted. It, most people will delight in it, and the Novus Ordo conservatives are all dead, in the sense that they're mentally dead. They they will not put up any kind of fight over this thing. I think that's what they are are counting on, and so they're bold. Uh, this has been a gradual evolution ever since John the Twenty Third. It has gotten worse and worse and worse every single day, and it is not stopping. And it promises to get yet worse. And and if people don't see it, it's I think through their own fault. You see them putting a in in this last series of paragraphs that you read that trying to put a religious uh, glow on uh, these these secular ideas and on this 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 uh, religion of this world. And so the idea is that that um, the 
categories of uh, religion, uh, you know, may not uh, uh, may not be true historically. The idea of Cain and Abel, you know, this is all uh, uh, for the modernists. This is all sort of ancient myths and ancient stories and so on. But this is 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 used to put a nice spiritual sounding glow. Uh, 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 aura around what are basically secular and godless ideas, and that's what he is. Uh, that's what he is 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 doing. That's what he's trying to promote. Well, and, and Father, I, I have to say, I I, I get sort of uh, wary whenever I see the phrase "Mother Nature" or "Mother Earth." Uh, is the are those phrases the Catholics should be using? <laughs> I've never come. Uh, I mean, I can't think of any um, uh, context in in uh, the, uh, Catholic theology or in Catholic writing that, uh, or in Catholic theology. Certainly, that that these are used as uh, categories that are really taken seriously. I mean, he's he's trying to derive some sort of. Uh, um, uh, theological legitimacy for uh, what are essentially secular ideals from uh, this particular idea. When people talk too much about, when they talk about Mother Earth, uh, naturally you think of the hippies in the 60s and the people who are pantheists and uh, earth worshippers uh, and so on. Again, people whose values are here in this uh, in this world. We call those the sandals and beads people. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, moving on from the sandals and beads people, I suppose the, the cardinal types, uh, we're coming again closer to the synod. And we've talked about this all throughout uh, Francis Watch this season. Our listeners, uh, people who consistently listen to Francis Watch, you'll know that we'll usually deal with news items. And we've then been talking about the synod. And Father Chicada, you pointed out a, a, an article from Marate, which actually came out last month. It was a really lengthy article um, on the uh, instruments and laborious, and it went into really surgical detail, um, taking the original Italian and translating it and then dissecting it. And there's a lot to go over here. So I think what I'd rather do is just... Uh, leave it to you to, to pick out one or two or even three things that you'd like to speak about that you think uh, is, is it's, I almost think it's like Vatican three father, where they've figured out the problems of the Vatican two documents and how conservatives were able to cite things. And I think they're trying to move into a new stage of Vatican three, where we're, they're going to lock up all the back doors. So conservatives have no way to get back. Uh, but at the same time, they want to leave the impression that nothing is being changed, of course. So um, the, uh, this article uh, speaks of different points in the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the outline for the Synod document. It says that, uh, for instance, there's a widespread agreement in favor of dispensing with the second instance and confirming uh, the sentences in, in uh, annulment cases. So the uh, idea was that in annulments, uh, if you had a uh, um, if 
there's a decree of nullity at the, uh, the first court, it had to go to another court all the time. Well, uh, now the idea is that we have to do away with that. And this, of course, naturally will increase in the number, increase the number of marriages being found null. Then uh, another paragraph, 121, calls for rethinking the forms of exclusion towards the divorce and civilly remarried uh, in uh, in the church. So this is the the uh, part of the. the nose of the camel that's that's uh, coming into the uh, tent, and then the uh, paragraph one twenty two. Maybe the tail is uh, coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I might be backing it. Uh, I, th- I think the camel is backing in. Um, the um, uh, paragraph. Uh, one of the other paragraphs says that others for the penitential way intend a process of clarification and new direction after the failure, that's failure of marriage experience, accompanied by a delegated presbyter or priest. Uh, This process should lead the person uh, concerned to an honest judgment of his proper condition, wherein also the same presbyter may reach an evaluation so as to make use of the power to bind and to loose in a way adequate to the situation. So what what they're sneaking in here, the the, the um, back end of the camel, as it were, is this idea that's come up before that uh, if uh, you have had a uh, first marriage, and that marriage has uh, sacramental marriage. That marriage is broken up, and you um, uh, marry someone else civilly, and you decide that. Well, in my conscience, I'm. I believe the first marriage was null for this, that, and the other reason. You get a uh, priest who um, has some sort of uh, authority for the new church to agree with you. And he, uh, in effect, absolves you in uh, 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 this uh, sacrament of penance. That's what the allusion to binding and loosing means here. Uh, he uh, gives you absolution, and he says, well, that's all right. In, in conscience, you are um, convinced that your first marriage was null, and therefore um, you seem to make a good case to me. And I think you're honest and you're sincere, and therefore uh, you can receive the sacraments. And that's what's going on here. And the it's it's uh, uh, amidst all this other verbiage, uh, this is uh, how the proposal is being um, uh, put in to the Senate document. Yeah, that reduces, um, besides the fact that it's the whole thing is absurd. It reduces marriage to a purely personal thing. The reason why marriage had to be adjudicated is because by its very nature it's social and therefore requires a, a judge and requires a, a, a statement and a judgment being handed down in an official way and recorded because the marriage itself is recorded and it is, it is a, a, you're, you're married throughout the whole church. So the whole church has to therefore annul the marriage in, in that sense uh, and that's why it had to be adjudicated this is a personal thing this is uh, you know i talked to my pastor or i talked to this presbyter uh who's you know the the annulment minister 
or something like that. And and he thinks it's okay, and, and now we can go to communion, and it's all in the context of the confessional, which don't exist anymore. The the but the you know the the seal of confession. So it's all on a on a very very personal basis. Uh, so that these people will now be uh, getting communion, Holy Communion on Sunday, uh, or the communion wafer, as the case may be, and uh, they uh, they will uh, you know th- that way marriage will just totally be destroyed because it will have no public aspect to it. Uh, it'll just be a, essentially a kind of living together. You know, we, we've talked about this for so many months, Your Excellency. When I was reviewing for today's episode, m- my question was, where where do we go from here? Let's assume that they're going to make some sort of movement on marriage, homosexuality. These almost just look like gateways, though, because this is a sort of social expression of the church's doctrinal teachings. But where are they going after this? If they're able to knock down these the the marriage proposition or quote unquote attitudes towards homosexuality. Where do they go for next? Well, I why would say why going the... to Sodom and Gomorrah? That's where they're going <laughs> <laughs> on a nonstop. Uh, the you know, well, once they get rid of all of you know the church's uh, objections to fornication to uh, unnatural sex and to to um, uh, living together and, and uh, divorce and remarriage, that's really a big hurdle. Once they get through that, I don't think they have too much more to do. Uh, in any case, they will have laid down all of the logic for anything else they need to do, but they will have transformed, so to speak, the Catholic Church into something acceptable to the modern world. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll ha- strip it of all of its uh, horrors for modern people uh, in the hope of dragging them into church. I don't know if you noticed, by the way, that 200 and something, 217,000 people left the church in Germany, officially declared themselves non-Catholics in Germany, and there was an increase of only 6,000 who decided to be Catholic, so they, the net loss was something like uh, in the area of like 208 or 210,000, I forget the exact figures, but that's close. Uh, this is the attempt to draw in these people. They think that they're going to come to church, they're going to partake in the crazy liturgies that are also meant for them, you know, to in some way to appeal to them. They think they're going to draw young people. They're they're going to draw the people that are living together. This is their their insane purpose. Uh, and uh, but I think beyond that, though they they are part of the the whole idea of uh, the humanity religion, and that the Catholic Church has to come to the humanity religion, uh, and uh, it has to be at the service of humanity, and not dictating to humanity what its its uh, what its moral morality should be, but it should be learning from humanity what its morality should be. I, I think that's in their minds. Yeah, and, and as His Excellency says, once you get past this um, and uh, abolish, in effect, uh, Catholic teaching on, on uh, sexual morality, then the, uh, the, that is the uh, objection, as it were, of the modern world. Of, of the average guy in the modern world, that uh, uh, he wants a, um, 
uh, rationale, as it were, or a blessing, as it were, for uh, sins against the Sixth and Ninth Commandment. And once you have, have pulled that uh, out of the way, uh, then uh, the Novus Ordo religion becomes, uh, becomes uh, acceptable to him. And it, it uh, you know, if, if um, a person is, is so inclined and interested in what they would call religious tradition, and he is, he is uh, uh, attracted by certain elements of the history of the Catholic Church, well, then he could go in for the Novus Ordo without all the uh, problems of the Sixth and Ninth Commandment that he might uh, encounter otherwise. But as Bishop Sanborn says, that may be the idea of the people who are pushing these changes, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to work. It simply is not going to work. And it, it's not even working in a place like Germany where the Novus Ordo Church is, in fact, extremely liberal. People aren't interested in it. No, they just want out. They don't want to pay the taxes, of course, but <laughs> because you have to pay a tax if you declare for a religion, and you get exempt from the tax if you don't. But their their churches are empty. I mean, the, the, yeah. the churches in Germany are, are just buildings now. Uh, I mean, it, it's not merely a tax thing. It's 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 a belief thing, and and the belief has been destroyed by Vatican II. Are there any other uh, points on the on the synod or on on the Casperization of the synod document, upcoming synod document that you want to talk about, Father? I think that basically we have uh, we have covered them. The the one other point was from um, uh, Senator Magister, and uh, he uh, discussed the synod proposals at uh, great length. Uh, especially the idea of, of uh, that somehow we're going to uh, affect a recon- uh, reconciliation of uh, divorced and remarried people and give them the sacraments. And he said that that everyone uh, talks about how a solution should be looked for for this. But um, being an Italian, he makes an uh, allusion to opera, to uh, Mozart's uh, opera, Così fan tutti, uh, where uh, I think I think one of the characters talks about um, the uh, how women are uh, the uh, in a comic way about how women's personalities are um, uh, reputed to be very uh, stable and adhering to what they want uh, to what they want and he the the uh, joke in the opera is that well. This is like uh, the uh, uh, Arabian phoenix. That it's 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 an animal. It's a creature that everyone talks about, but that no one has ever seen. And so, Magister's idea is that the solution to this divorce and remarriage, uh, and the reception of the sacraments that everyone uh, is talking about, uh, that will come is is uh, 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 something that, in the practical order, does not exist. Well, the solution that... is that they split up. That's the solution. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is. <laughs> well, the church it, had it, the solution before. <laughs> well, as 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 some before me have said, Your Excellency, that is a hard saying. Who can bear it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
you know, the, if, if people look back historically, the church has dealt with this issue very publicly before it was a, a little situation with a gentleman known named Henry VIII, uh, who had a marriage issue and wanted to get out of it and wanted to procure a divorce, a, a legal divorce. He wanted to, uh, in the words of Robert Bolt, uh, to dispense with his dispensation. Um, so, the church has had some time to, to look at this. Uh, this isn't a new topic. Um, well, with, with the synod in our rearview mirror, we'll proceed to our closing uh, parts of uh, Francis Watch. And Your Excellency, it really wouldn't be Francis Watch if we didn't have a new insult for you. So we've got a, a new insult this month, which, uh, which is directed at our Lord, actually. Um, our Lord never tried to play the professor, quote-unquote, and this is uh, from Vatican Insider. Uh, Jesus never sought to play the professor, but spoke to the human heart so that everybody could understand him. Universities and schools today need to educate young people towards developing a critical sense and open mind of caring for today's world, helping them not to ignore the reality that surrounds him. Um, do not play the professors, but instead prepare the new generations to show a greater responsibility in the face of today's problems, the needs of the poor, concern for the environment. Because the true evangelical message in- encourages participation, the pursuit of social justice and care for others and the environment, looking after the gift of creation. Well, I mean, apart from the fact that uh, our Lord was teaching since he since he went to teach at twelve years old, the uh, the elders in the temple, um, this again places this emphasis on the active life as superior to the contemplative life. I think that's sort of the shadow implication here that all that matters is action, the life of the mind, the intellectual life, the spiritual life. That's not really as vital and important as action. Mm-hmm. Where did our Lord ever talk about creation and in protecting the environment? I mean, I don't, I don't recall those verses in sacred scripture. Uh, he <laughs> certainly wasn't when he cursed that fig tree. <laughs> no. uh, and uh, the uh, no, where is it? Uh, and uh, he is constantly teaching. The whole thing is a teaching. The, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, all of the famous things. He, he, he goes around teaching and, and giving this this gospel to, to all of these people who are listening to him. And, uh, and he performs miracles in confirmation of the teaching. He, uh, he, he, he always does that. It's always something in, in confirmation of a teaching. And uh, so the, uh, that, that's his... I mean, it's a total distortion of the gospel. It's seeing it the way you would like to see it. And it is as if the Catholic Church for 2,000 years has misunderstood the gospel. That, um, that uh, in some way, uh, uh, that it missed the boat on the gospel. Uh, what, what about in John 17, where he says uh, that the salvation is to know you and to know your only begotten Son, whom you have sent? Uh, is, is that, I mean, that's doctrine. I'm paraphrasing there. But uh, that's doctrine. Um, and uh, that those who, who uh, do away with even the slightest bit of the law will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and that's cited with regard to doctors. Uh, I mean, it's hardly worth answering that. It is so stupid. 
that our Lord did, did not insist on doctrine and that he insisted on social action. It's just so stupid that really I don't think it deserves a response. One other thing, though, I do note at the beginning of it is that uh, we, uh, it's, it's a theme that we've seen before, that uh, he said that Jesus never sought to play the professor but spoke to the human heart. So the kind of idea, the, the idea once again uh, you get is by, um, is that we're supposed to concentrate on the individual experience. Remember that that's his idea of faith, that it's, it's, it is uh, this vague notion of encountering Jesus, and when you get this um, uh, warm feeling from uh, encountering Jesus, that, that is, uh, that's what faith consists of. So he's, he's setting up, uh, again, an opposition between the true understanding of faith and his modernist understanding of, of what faith is supposed to be. It's, it's, uh, for him, it's simply uh, some sort of a feeling in the heart, a um, uh, feeling in your bones, or as I think the Mormons say, a burning in your belly. Well, if you're referring to heartburn, uh, these, these definitely cause heartburn, these comments. Uh, you should take a hermeneutic uh, and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, take, two, take, take two hermeneutics with each meal, uh, or each time you read one of these. Um, and again, we'd say Francis Watch wouldn't be Francis Watch without an insult. But Francis Watch wouldn't be Francis Watch without finding that we're actually in the same religion as Protestants. And uh, he did this, um, actually, uh, he took an opportunity uh, during a meeting with uh, a group of people called the Renewal of the Holy Spirit, who visited in early July. And uh, I was sort of, uh, was funny that the official Vatican network um, took the time to say uh, in his address, which he delivered, quote unquote, off the cuff. I don't know why they felt the need to uh, make sure that we, that was clarified. But he says, um, the, the, the article quoted that he gave the examples of a Catholic priest and a Lutheran minister who were both executed by the Nazis. And of the 23 Coptic Christians who just a few months ago were murdered in Libya, he noted, too, that Paul VI, in canonizing the Ugandan martyrs, made reference to the Anglican catechists who shed their blood with them. And here's the quote, excuse me, don't be scandalized. They are our martyrs. Well, are you scandalized, Father? (laughs) Sure scandalizes me. (laughs) (laughs) Again, we saw this as explicit heresy. Uh, yeah. the Council of Florence um, said, and uh, so you know he's showing himself as a as an unmitigated and external public heretic by saying that. Uh, so, but again, it shows that he has no care for dogma. He doesn't. He doesn't believe any of it. Uh, for him, it's just an instrument, uh, as as Father Chicada says. I mean, it makes uh, some pious references in order to support some social action. Uh, but uh, really, it, it, you know, for him, you can just tell that we all have an experience of Jesus. We all see him maybe a little differently. That doesn't matter. Uh, we all have him. We all experience him. And so dogma is nothing for him. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, if somebody believes in Jesus uh, and he's martyred, uh, well, then he's as much of a martyr as a Catholic. It doesn't matter. Uh, the Vatican II said that the Church is composed of all of those who look with faith toward Jesus. 
You know, all this goes back to Vatican II, the primacy of the human conscience over over Catholic doctrine, which we see in religious liberty in Vatican II, that in, in, enshrined and, and put on a pedestal the notion of the primacy of human conscience over dogma. That we see in that approach to the divorce and remarriage, that, well, if you're in your conscience, you know, you think that this is okay, well, then uh, we'll approve it. It all goes back to Vatican II, and, and nothing will be solved in the Catholic Church until Vatican II is burned. Well, the, as usual, Father, it's His Excellency being very negative, and there's that, that negative <laughs> yes, that's theology. Right. Um, I, I'm going to wrap up today's episode uh, by looking at uh, a couple articles that you alluded to towards the end of your notes for today's show, which uh, alluded to a crisis among Catholic families and a vocations crisis. Unsurprisingly, uh, these headlines, uh, in light of everything we've been covering in today's episode, I'm not really that surprised that we'd see this. But when it said crisis among Catholic families, what was the what was the specifics that they were talking about, Father? Well, the, the uh, idea that uh, people, now in, uh, not only Catholic families, accept uh, all of the, uh, the givens of modern culture, uh, the being uh, immersed by modern uh, godless culture. And uh, as a result, uh, their, their religious practice has, has uh, diminished. This uh, one study found that only 22% of Catholic parents attend Mass uh, weekly. Uh, and, you know, that's, a, that's something that's, that's shocking. But you have to say that this is country? another... Of, what country? The United States. Ah. And that, uh, uh, that people do not... Um, uh, that this is fairly consistent, that uh, other sources show that it's, it's around there, it's about a, a quarter. So then... Uh, so you have that, that families don't pray together or engage in any sort of religious formation, uh, that uh, they're not involved in religious education, uh, that, uh, and you read this anecdotally, too, where the um, uh, confirmation uh, is, the, they, they delay the reception of the sacrament of confirmation and of a sort of as long as possible with generally with the idea that, well, maybe there's still some hope of keeping the kids going to church. But of course, uh, after that, many of them, uh, uh, many of them don't. So there's simply not, uh, uh simply not being formed in, uh, uh, in any of the uh, normal Catholic practices for handing down the faith. And, of course, eventually what is going to happen is uh, that uh, if the, this is all going to uh, die out in a generation or two. Let's hope so. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> we won't have to do Francis Watch anymore. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> That will give me a lot of free time. Uh, well, well, a lot I, of free time. A lot of free time uh, in this sense uh, to put into practice that one of the other sayings of uh, to promote the idea of Francis that if faith does not reach into a person's pockets, it is not genuine. So it leaves you more time for fundraising, I think. So. <laughs> right, I, I suppose, or more time to do restoration radio episodes, Father. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. That too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, tell us what's going on at uh, St. Gertrude's. It's the summertime now. Well, it's uh, we had two successful summer camps: a boy summer camp and a girl summer camp. That is um, uh, doing. Uh, uh, very well. We have the sisters from Florida up who are great hit with uh, the girls from the girls from the summer camp. Where um, uh, our uh, activities at uh, St. Gertrude's are uh, a little bit uh, lower during the uh, during the summer. We look forward to starting things up, cranking things up once again in September as we start the school year up. And I'm uh, just figuring out my uh, teaching weeks down at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Florida. So we'll be doing the introductory course to canon law uh, this year and uh, another course on the sacred liturgy. Well, that's wonderful. What about you, Your Excellency? What are what are you doing other than than uh, than not doing uh, Restoration Radio episodes this month? <laughs> uh, oh, the summer is always dedicated toward preparing for the next academic year. So, uh, as I said, I have to do a big course in church history. I'm also going to do a course in modern philosophical errors as part of the Modern Errors series. So the first part is is historical, the second part is philosophical, the third part is theological. Uh, and uh, so that, that's uh, both of those are large courses, uh, but especially the period that we're doing in church history is 1878 to 1958. And uh, that is particularly interesting because it bears on our own situation. And uh, also it's particularly difficult because there are not, uh, there's so much written that you have to... <laughs> And so much is known that you, you have to condense it somehow, and you have to get through a lot of material. And it's recent enough that it has not been digested by historians. You see, where they give you, you know, the basics of it. You, you have to really uh, get through a lot of literature on it. But it's very interesting, you know, extremely interesting. Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that course. And... Um, uh, the others have the usual dogma courses and scripture courses and so that's what uh, we're cleaning up the building. We're doing the deep cleaning of the rooms, painting rooms, uh, you know, just getting the whole building again ready for another year. So, and you're only having to teach in two languages this year, Your Excellency. Uh, let's see. What am I teaching? I'm I'm teaching. I'll teach Latin in French. But uh, no, we're kind of low on on foreign languages. All of our new people speak English. <laughs> All of the yes. So uh, uh, so I don't have to uh, do much in language. We're actually thinking of throwing in a French course because it's so useful mm. for sacred theology. Yeah, I know. Yes. So we'll do Greek and we'll do Latin as usual, and we may do French. It depends really on what the 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 schedule can bear. Every year it's different between what the priests can do and what the seminarians can take, <laughs> in all senses of the word. Uh, uh, but uh, French is very, very important for any serious study of theology. You really can't do it without French. Uh, after Latin, then French is the most important. Well, and you know, the, the French would remind you, Your Excellency, that that's the language of our Lord. So, I mean, it's supremely important. Yeah. People to probably of David the King, from whom the <laughs> French monarchy descends. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> yes. But I'm sure he spoke French. 
and, and, yes, the whole court, you know, in Jerusalem spoke French. And, yes. <laughs> well, on on that froggy note, Your Excellency and Father, I'll I'll leave you. Thank you so much for, as always, giving of your time very generously to explain to our listeners, many of whom, as I've said, and have continued to write to us, are listening, um, are open-minded, they're frustrated, they're not quite sure what to do, but I think, as always, Francis Watch gives them an opportunity to look some cold, hard facts in the face, and thank you for for taking the time to to share that. Always happy to be here, Stephen. Yes. I wish I could say the same. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only kidding. Only kidding. All right. It does a lot of good. It's just... (laughs) So looking forward to the next one. All right. We'll see you next month. All right. Thank you. As always, if you have any questions for His Excellency or Father, you can write to us, FrancisWatch at truerestoration.org, and we can clarify any points that you have or cover topics that you don't feel that we've been covering on Francis Watch. We have a pretty uh, standard template that Father uh, adheres to, but if you feel like there's categories we could be covering, uh, we'll, we'll add to that or we'll take a look at that. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I'm Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. (laughs) 